Amen. Please be seated. If you are an elementary age kiddo, you can head out these doors and go to your class. If you're a middle school age kid, fifth to eighth grade, head out these doors and turn to the right and go into uh, the uh, back 40 there and enjoy, enjoy your class back there. We have uh, one secret sneaky announcement that came in after announcement. So since we're not the tightest run ship around here, we have a, we have on Tuesday morning, this Tuesday at 1130, starting back in this back room right here, uh, women over 40 are going to be meeting back there. It's bring your own lunch. It's a time of study and fellowship. There'll be no childcare available. So it is uh, 40 up. And uh, if you're, you don't have to give your age or anything. We're not going to check your license before you come in. But if you, uh, if you go back there, come in here Tuesday morning at 1130, bring your own lunch for a time of fellowship and study. And uh, if you have any questions, you may ask Rhonda. I don't know where Rhonda went, but if you don't know where Rhonda is, just ask anybody, and they can probably point her out to you. Or you can also ask, ask Julie. She raised her hand. I assume that was a volunteering thing, or we're bidding at an auction. But what do you buy? You bought, you bought the responsibility of talking to people. So it's free. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Hanging in there? All right, good. Um, we, as Craig mentioned, we're going to be jumping back into the book of John, and it's a very large book. Uh, we're in week 70-something. I don't know which week we're in. The last, we had to go back and look because it's been a while. The last sermon was actually right after Thanksgiving. It was the last, so the last time we were in John was before Christmas, and that, that seems to me like a really long time ago. And uh, we've had Advent, and now we, we talked about uh, uh, this, this All of Me campaign that we talked about laying the, the foundation for what, some of the things we want to do as a church this year. And now we're jumping back into John. We've got the tail end of 19 today, and then we're going to jump into chapter 20. And once we start chapter 20, it means we only have 20 and 21 left in the book of John. And, uh, and then we're going to move on to Leviticus is our next, just kidding, is our next study. Um, I would actually, that would be great. Uh, I would love to study Leviticus. It's about God's holiness. It's awesome. Anyway, jump in and read Leviticus, not to knock Leviticus. There's a lot of rules in there, though. But we are going to be jumping back into the, the book of John. Um, uh, Merrill Tenney, who's a, who's a professor, wrote this wonderful thing. He said, there's a peculiar thing about the fourth gospel is that its author chose to hang its key by the back door. And it's this wonderful idea of, you know, there are people's house that you have a key to or, you know, people's houses that, you know, you don't want to go in the front door. You go in the side door. And, and, and it, there's this familiarity to the book of John that makes it very unique in that in, in John chapter 20, and we've said this over and over again, and we're going to say it again. But in John 20, verse 30, he says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, which is just a wonderful thought. But these, the things that I wrote in this book, John says, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is why John wrote John. So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that he is God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that is the point of this book. And if you think back to all the way back in chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. He lays the foundation of the deity of Jesus. And in this first part of the book, in chapters 1 through 12, you have this, uh, it's called the, the, the book of signs by some of the Jesus, is demonstrating his deity. 
culminating in, in the, uh, the raising Lazarus from the dead. And then in chapter 13, we had this wonderful passage of teaching. And uh, Jesus uh, washes the disciples' feet and he teaches them of the Lord's Supper and all these marvelous things that we learn uh, through chapter 17. And then in chapter 18, Jesus goes to the garden, he gets betrayed, he is arrested, he's put on this trial. And then in chapter 19, he is crucified. And that is where we're going to start today in verse 38. And before we do, let me pray briefly. And then we'll jump into John 19, 38. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the gospel of John. How many, how many people have read this book and put their faith in you and been saved? Thank you for this gospel. We thank you for the Holy Spirit to help us understand what you want us to know today. Teach us, Lord Jesus. We need to hear from you. We need what you want to teach us from your word today. Help us understand better the reality of the resurrection. Help us remember who you are, what you have done. Help us apply this to our life. Help us walk as radically new creatures, new creations, empowered by the Holy Spirit and the resurrected life of our Savior. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are going to not skim, we don't want to skim over the Bible, but we're going to um, quickly go through 38 through the end of 19, and then we're going to spend most of our time in uh, 20 verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> so it starts in 38, it says, Later, uh, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. The two of them wrapped it with spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial custom. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because of it, or because it was the Jewish day of pas uh, preparation, excuse me, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus was a member of the Pharisees. And they were really both secret disciples of Jesus. They are no longer in secret. They are now very publicly disciples of Jesus. They came out, they took his body down. Nicodemus gets the mixture of spices and, and the myrrh and aloes. And then... They come in verse 4. They send Nicodemus, Father, remember way back in chapter 3. Here he is again. Beautiful picture of redemption. Taking Jesus' body, they wrap it with spices and strips of linen. In accordance with Jewish burial custom. Listen, if you understand anything from this passage, it, Jesus is really dead. He was, he was dead in verse 37, and he's still dead in verse 38. They, they take his body off of a cross. They take it, and then they wrap it in linen, this very intimate, just think about that, how intimate that is. Joseph and Nicodemus are wrapping Jesus' corpse, okay? This is the reality of what happened. Jesus is dead. They would have noticed if he was just really tired. He would have been warm. At this point, Jesus' body temperature is cooling because he's died. His body died. 
Jesus is dead. There's no way that Joseph and Nicodemus wrapped a napping Jesus. He did not swoon. He was not passed out. He was not just hurt really bad. He was dead. And they take him and they bury him in a new tomb that Joseph had purchased. And they needed to do it quickly because it was a day of preparation. And they laid him there. And we end chapter 19 with Jesus lovingly prepared for burial and laid in a tomb. Now we're going to verse 20, chapter 20, excuse me. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed. We know from other, other Gospels, if you want to go and try to piece together all of the narrative of, of the resurrection, uh, go for it. It's an awesome task. And Mary Magdalene and, and, and Mary, the, the mother of James, and, and, and several other women are there, and they're going to deal with the body of Jesus. So they went to the tomb while it's still dark, or this was dark when they set out. I assume it was light by the time they got there because they could see. And they saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So the Synoptic Gospels say the stone was rolled away. There are some commentators that think that the stone might not have just been rolled away, but was actually removed, like rolled away and thrown on the ground. I don't know if that's actually true or not. I like the idea of the, th of the stone kind of being blasted out of the tomb. It doesn't really say that. But uh, an angel does sit on it, and angels are like scary lightning men. So, but this stone is gone. And so Mary... In verse 2, it says, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. So Mary is with these other women. She sees the stone rolled away, and she takes off to go tell Peter and John. When was the last time we saw Peter? Remember? He'd been in a bit of a pickle, and he had just denied Jesus three times. It's kind of fun to see him pop up here. And you'll notice John hadn't turned his back on Peter. I don't know if they were in the same house. Maybe they went to the two different houses. Maybe she went and got both of them. Maybe she got Peter and Peter got jo uh, uh, John. But she goes to get the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, which is how John refers to himself, which is a quick aside. That does not mean that John, Jesus loved John more than the other guys or that he didn't love Peter. Jesus loves his disciples. Okay, don't. Are you a disciple of Jesus? He loves you. Do not ever forget that. The greatest lie the devil tells is trying to convince you that God doesn't really love you. And John, by the time he's writing this gospel, every time he sees himself in the story, I think he's just overwhelmed by remembering how much Jesus loves him. Don't ever let anybody take that away from you. God loves you. So John and Peter... She comes to them, and Mary Magdalene says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. She's just desperate. She thinks that the enemies of Jesus have, have stolen his body for some reason. Terrible thing. And so in verse 3, Peter and the other disciples start for the tomb. By the time they get to verse 4, it says both were running. Um, I, I get the idea that they were maybe walking, and if you get the story from the other gospels, like Mary Magdalene goes, and then she heads back to go tell Peter and John, and these other women, Mary and Salome and Joanna and some of the other ladies, they go there and they see that the tomb is empty. And then they are running back. And I, I, I want to say that John and Peter are walking to the tomb and they run into these other women. And then in verse 4, both were running. And they are running to the tomb. But the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love that he kind of puts that in there. He's like, just say no, Peter. I, I ran faster than you. 
Um, probably because John, John's younger probably than Peter. Most people think he was uh, either an old, uh, old, older teen or, an, or very early 20s, young. I think there's actually a wide range of ages among the disciples, which makes a lot of sense. It wasn't all just uh, young people with babies or whatever like in our church here, so good joke. Uh, but John outruns Peter, and he uh, reaches the tomb first. And then it says he bent over and looked in. So this idea of the tomb was uh, something that was lowered down, and it had been carved out of rock. And inside the tomb was, uh, most archaeologists think there was a, it was a tomb that was hewn out of rock, and then there was a depression where the body was, was laid, so that he's got to hunch down to get into it or to look in. So John gets there first. He bends over and looks in. So I want you to look in verse 5. It says he looked in or he saw. And in verse 6, it says Peter saw the strips. And in verse 8, it says John saw and believed. So even though those are translated in English, those are each three separate Greek words. So the first word, he gets over and he bends down and he looks in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. So that really word means to perceive with the eyes, like he looked at it and he saw, and to look at something with, which causes uh, earnest contemplation. So John sees the tomb open, gets there, looks in, and sees the linen strips that were wrapped around Jesus lying there, but no Jesus. And so I get this idea that John is sitting there, hunched down, looking in the tomb, and Peter's running behind him, and John's like, what is going on? He sees something, and he's processing this. Then Simon Peter, in verse 6, who was behind him, arrived, and he just runs right into the tomb. Um, I don't think patient contemplation is one of Peter's strong points, probably. And so Peter, Lord love him, he just, he just runs in there. I love Peter. He jumps out of boats. He just, he's so great, and uh, he's a lot like me. He just runs in there, and he runs, not always thinking. Peter just runs in, into the tomb, and it says, he saw, so this word is a word that means one who looks at a thing with purpose, and it indicates a careful observation of detail. And we can see this in what he says. He says, as he saw the strips of linen lying there, he saw what John saw. John sees the strips of linen. Peter sees the strips of linen, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. So a lot has been made of this, like uh, how is the linen in there? How was it folded? Did Jesus like evaporate and turn into the thing like the Shroud of Turin? You can, you can, you can waste your life trying to figure out all these things out. Was it folded? Was it set, set aside? Did Jesus wake up and pop out? And was he like in a tunic and then he folded the... What's the point? Jesus wasn't there anymore. And Peter runs into the tomb and there's no Jesus. He's gone. The only thing left was these uh, things that had covered his body when he was dead. Finally, verse 8, the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. And he saw, this is another word uh, that means uh, to see and to know, not with mere perception, but to see with the eyes and to see with the mind and to experience the reality of what you're seeing. So John comes in, looks down, looks and sees the cloth. Peter runs right into the tomb. He sees the whole picture. And then John, following Peter in, sees, and then he does something else. 
He saw and believed. Belief, the word believe there is repeated like 99 times in the book of John. It is the, one of the key purposes of the entire book. John wants us to see what happened and then believe. He has no use for just cognizant knowledge. Useless unless it leads to belief. An atheist can memorize the entire Bible and go to hell when he dies. The point is not just seeing. It's not just knowing. It is believing. And John sees and believes. Can you imagine what those guys are doing in the tomb? I I guess it's not very big, but they're in there. Who says something first? I mean, does Peter say, doesn't record it can you imagine what there's going on in their minds jesus's body is in there and it looks like he just slept look at verse nine in the niv this is actually in parentheses and not in, not in all translations but the niv actually puts it as a parenthetical statement it says they they he saw and believed but they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had arise from the dead. See, John's putting this in there, and he's like, listen, we saw and believed that the tomb is empty. We did not get it yet. We did not understand yet. They didn't, it was going to take them a while to form and, and all this pull from all their knowledge of the Old Testament to finally be like, oh, oh. And then they go and they write the rest of the New Testament, right? So... These guys saw and believed, but they did not yet understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Okay. So we have this thing that for believers is nothing new, right? Yeah, Jesus raised from the dead. It's Easter. We, the best Easter eggs are the empty ones because Jesus isn't there. You know, um, don't do that to kids, please. P- put something in there um, and then teach them in the Bible. But... Um, we know the tomb is empty, right? We celebrate it one day a year. It's good. And so, it's kind of sad, right? So, the tomb was empty. For John and Peter, this is something explosively cataclysmic. This can't happen. People don't die on Friday and then rise from the dead on Sunday morning. That doesn't happen. For a believer, it's sort of like, well, yeah, people raised from the dead, Jesus, and like, yeah. And this doesn't happen. It's an incredible thing that happened. Incredible, meaning it's difficult for it to be credible. It's hard to believe. For an unbeliever, this may seem like lunacy. And that's why people come up with theories. The swoon theory, all these other things. They stole the body. They tricked him. Anything else but that Jesus actually rose from the dead, right? Because if he really died and really rose from the dead, all of a sudden I have to step off of everything that I know and understand about God and accept the reality of a God who says, I love you, I came for you, you are fallen in your sin, I'm dying to pay for that sin, and I'm going to raise from the dead to give you new life. Now believe on me or be condemned forever. That is the choice that we have. What do we do with information that we find in here? There's a lot in here. A couple things that popped out was, one, for the believer, 
And I say for the believer because for the unbeliever, the only thing that matters is that you trust in Jesus. That's it. Everything else is secondary. That's the only thing that matters is that you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave and that you put all of your hope and trust in him. That's it. Everything else can come after that. You can read, you can understand, you can memorize, you can read theological books, you can go to church, you can learn all this stuff. But it all comes down to believing in Jesus and being saved. That is the initial thing that must happen for you to begin new life. It's like telling a baby in the womb, calculus. Just, like, they got to get born first, and then we teach them stuff, right? It's like my wife has a coffee mug that says, first I drink the coffee then I do the things, right? It's so you've got to get the first things first. And with an unbeliever, the only thing that matters is that they believe. And we love them in that process, and we teach them through that process, and we don't beat them up or condemn them. We just teach them the gospel. Don't get, don't get, if they say, well, what about the Left Behind series? It's like, let's, let's go back to, let's not go there yet. Let's, let's talk about Jesus. Let's just bring everything back to Jesus. But for the believer, it is okay to believe with all your heart and not yet understand. Was John's belief in the empty tomb real? Yeah, he wrote, he saw and believed. By the time he wrote these, he knew exactly what that word meant. He believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now it says they did not yet understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. There is grace to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus and be saved and not yet fully understand. It's called sanctification, and it's a really long process. It lasts from salvation until glorification. We're all somewhere in that process. But that it's okay to not have answers to all of your questions. That's okay. And it's okay to have really hard questions. One of the most beautiful things, Treb, has ever said to hurting people is that God is big enough for your questions. A child dies. Something terrible happens. You lose your job. A spouse leaves. Why, God? I once had somebody tell me, don't ask God why. You ask him, what now? I'm like, that's really great later on down the road. But when I'm really hurting, can I not just ask him why? Why can't I do that? And they'll say, well, your, your faith is, well, you know what? Sometimes my faith is really small and I'm really scared. Do you think John and Peter got everything while they're sitting there hunched down in a tomb in the early morning light? They just see that Jesus isn't there and they believe that he isn't there, but they don't fully know what it understands. Do you think they had questions? Probably big questions. Like, what in the world is going on? We must have grace in our church to allow people to ask hard questions. I mean, have you not ever hurt and looked at God and said, God, I just, are you really good? Are you really good? In our whole process with trying to get our son Joseph from the Congo, Jenny and I had to, we came face to face with that question. We're like, where you walk up to him and you say, Lord, in all of this that is going on, you be good if you're letting this happen where else are people going to ask questions like that if not in the church where are they going to go are they going to go to the courthouse 
They're going to go to the Supreme Court and go before the nine wisest people in the world who have told us that it's legal to murder a child? Excuse me? They are not my judges. My judge is up in heaven, and he's coming back to earth. And I stand before him, and he is the one that I must give account to. So when I ask a question, it is not to a person that I need the answer. I need an answer from God. And just like we read in Job, the beauty about that book is that God does not answer Job's question. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't say, sure, I'm going to write you a blog, and I'm going to tell you the answers to your question. Eight reasons why I or whatever. He answers Job with the magnificence of himself. And that is enough. And Job's response is, I, I bow down. I bow down, Lord. Because my question, when we ask God hard questions, he always will answer us with himself. But there must be grace to believe, right? And then not yet to understand. Because this process of growing in faith, like theology is faith-seeking understanding and we, we constantly flip it around we constantly think well, i'm going to understand first and then i'll believe no belief is a work of the holy spirit in the life of an unbeliever if we're telling the gospel to an unbeliever we better pray like our pants are on fire or maybe put your pants out and then pray i mean pray like crazy right pray like because it's god who saves people it's not your responsibility to save anybody. You, you kind of can't anyway. But it is your responsibility to tell them the gospel, and it is your responsibility to pray for that person. So what if they have questions you don't answer? Remember the first thing? Bring them to Jesus. Well, what if they've got questions like about, bring them to Jesus. And you tell them, I have questions too. A little authenticity goes a really long way when we're talking to people about Jesus. It is okay to believe with all your heart and still have questions. I have questions the Lord may never answer. And not just about dinosaurs. I mean, bigger questions. Like, have you ever woke up one day and just thought, is the tomb really empty? Like, and asked him, Lord, encourage my heart today with that reality. Because if the tomb was empty, everything else matters. and we'll probably spend this is a large theme and it's that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real John had no reason to they had no reason to make it up right they all suffered greatly because of their confession of an empty tomb it's not like John was like hey so if I tell you Jesus tomb is empty you're gonna like get me a condo in the Bahamas that's not what happened like no but I get you a jail cell on Patmos and you can stay there forever they believed, and they believed because it was real. They were in an empty tomb that Jesus' body was in, and then he resurrected from that grave. Paul wrote a lot about the resurrection, obviously, but he spent an entire chapter in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, and a long chapter at that, which we're not going to read all of. But at the end of this incredible book, <clears throat> he's writing this chapter to the Corinthians. And he says in uh, chapter 1, uh, 15, verse 1, 
He says, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached. Isn't that great? He's like, by the way, after all this stuff, I'm going to remind you of the gospel which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, don't believe some other gospel. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. If you believe in something other than the gospel, it's vanity. It's nothing. It's, it's wind. But if you believe in the real gospel, that Jesus died, well, we're going to get to that. He's going to explain it better than I will. Verse 3. Keep reading. Rule number one, right? For what I received, Paul, I passed on to you, the Corinthians, as of first importance. This, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. Imagine that. Paul is writing this to the Corinthians, and most of the people who saw the resurrected Jesus were still walking around. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles, and last of all, um, to, to Paul. What does he say there in verse 3? The gospel is this. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried. And then that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. See, that's what John and them didn't quite understand yet. And he says again in Romans 5, Paul will tell them in Genesis 5, uh, 9. He says, since we've now been justified by his blood, meaning the, the sacrifice on the cross, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Through what? Through Jesus. For if you see this two-sided coin thing, two sides of the same coin. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So we we're reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So do you see this? The gospel is not just that Jesus died for our sins. It's good that he died for our sins. Yes, like infinitely good. But there were two problems that humanity had. We were sinful, and then we were dead in our sins. So the cross took, takes care of the sins part, sin part. It is The cross is God's solution to the problem of sin. How can I remove sin from them? Jesus. How can uh, they have a relationship with me? How can I reconcile and take the sin away? The cross. But it leaves a bunch of people then with no sin who are dead. The, the, the image would be someone who had died of cancer, and you have a dead body there full of cancer, and the cross takes the cancer out. Great. Still a big problem. They're dead. What do we do about that? The resurrection. The resurrection is what brings someone to life. So that the gospel is always this two-sided coin. The coin seems bad with the gospel, money, whatever. But I can't think of a better metaphor. But it's something that you can't separate, right? You cannot separate the cross from the resurrection. Don't, don't do that. If you're going to tell people the gospel, tell them the gospel. That he died for our sins, and then he rose from the dead. And in rising from the dead, I have new life. See, the resurrection of Jesus is real. What difference does that make? Well, we often live like only the first half of that is what really matters. Yes, he died for my sins. Yes, I believe that he died for my sins and he freed me from my sins. Now it's my job to go on and live out my, my own Christian life on my own power. I'm going to go ahead and I've got to work really hard. I've got to earn God's trust. I've got to work my butt off so that I can do the things he wants me to do. Well, it's utterly ridiculous, and I do it all the time. 
I do it every day. Ian Thomas wrote this marvelous book called The Saving Life of Christ. In the first chapter, he says this. <laughs> I've never read Ian Thomas. He's an old British guy. I mean, he's with the Lord now. Buy his book and read it, The Saving Life of Christ. He says, how stupid it would be to buy a car with a powerful engine under the hood and then to spend the rest of your days pushing it. Thwarted and exhausted, you would wish to discard it as a useless thing. You imagine some guy pushing a Ferrari down the highway? If it wasn't broken, obviously. If it's, but if it's, he buys a car, to, goes and buys a Ferrari, wherever you buy Ferraris. I mean, I don't even have a concept. Do you Google that? I don't know. Anyway, he goes and buys a Ferrari, and then he pushes it out of the lot. And he spends his days pushing the Ferrari. Thwarted and exhausted, you would wish to discard it as a useless thing. When God redeemed you through the precious blood of his dear son, he placed, in the language of my illustration, a powerful engine under the hood. Nothing less than the resurrection life of God the Son. Given over to you in the person of God the Holy Spirit. So stop pushing. Step in, switch on, and expose every hill of circumstance. Every opportunity of temptation, of perplexity, of doubt. No matter how threatening, to what? To the divine energy that is available to you. With what magnificent confidence you may step out into the future when once you have consented to die to your own self-effort and to make yourself available as a redeemed sinner to all that God has made available to you in his risen son. <laughs> Mind-blowing. Do you get what he's saying? The power that raised Jesus from the dead inhabits the believer. I'm not talking that you have power to go out and live your best, best life now. And I don't mean to throw the guy under the bridge or whatever, under the truck or under the bus or wherever it is that people throw people. That's not the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave. And then your, his Holy Spirit indwells us and empowers us to live a life that would be impossible apart from him. And yet we receive his salvation and then we do the rest of it on our own. I'm anxious. Why? Because I won't let go of things that I want to control. I understand that there are difficulties in life. I'm, but we must bring it all to Jesus. What about your hard questions? Um, I think the resurrection was a really big problem that God solved. He can probably fix us. What does it look like practically? I need power to be the kind of father for my children that I cannot be on my own. I cannot be the man that Deacon and Madeline and Keegan and Joseph need me to be on my own. That man needs help a lot. And I don't just mean forgiveness of sin. I need new life. And it is the life of Jesus that gives us life. It is the death that paid for our sin. It is the life that makes us new creatures. And I need his life in me to be a husband. I need to be a husband that I can't be unless the life of Christ is in me. What about if my marriage is broken? Guess what we need? You need the resurrection life of Jesus. What does he say here? He has given us nothing less than the resurrection life of God the Son. This book that we just are almost finished with. The Jesus that rose Lazarus from the grave. The one who is the word, who is from eternal 
he inhabits the life of every believer through the power of the Holy Spirit. It means that we have the capacity through God's work in us to live a life that is extraordinarily impossible. Think about Philip, who we talked about a couple weeks ago. Think about Peter's life. Think about the transformation. We need to be a church that lives an impossible life. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about a church that lives in such a way, that loves in such a way, that the gospel just explodes out church that loves their neighbor. Do you know how hard that is to do? Neighbors aren't always great. Not all of my neighbors are super good. But Jesus doesn't say love the nice ones. He says love them all. What if my marriage is broken? I'm going to go back to that. What if I have conflict with my spouse? Well, you know what you need? You need power to love that person as Christ loved you, husband. If your wife is being mean to you, well, you can gripe about it, or you can have an affair, or you can look at porn, or you can submit your heart to the Lord Jesus and love her like Christ loves you. That's what you can do. Wives, you want to submit to your husband who's being a jerk? Guess what? Hard. You need the power of Jesus. You want to proclaim the gospel to someone who doesn't know it? Hard. You need the power of Jesus. See, if the resurrection isn't real, and Paul will explain this later on in 1 Corinthians, if the resurrection is not real, we of all men are to be most pitied because it is the anchor upon which all of our hope hangs. The resurrection of Jesus is real. And yet in the process of walking with him, we're going to have questions. And you know what? Jesus gives you permission to ask him. It doesn't matter what I say. He gives us permission to come to him and get those questions answered or come to him and just receive him. And then all of a sudden our questions maybe aren't so important after all. But we must walk in this newness of life by surrendering to the power that is within us. Get in. Stop pushing. Get in. Sit down. Say, Jesus, roll. Just come. Fill me with your power. Have your way with me. And we're going to see as we finish on in the book of John, as we finish out this chapter, and as we move through the final parts of this book, we'll, we'll see some of that happening. Of course, it's hard not to read John and then just go back to reading Acts again, but we kind of already did that. So there is reality in the resurrection. And I, I'm, I'm calling us as a church today to begin living out or go back to living out, if you have in the past, live out the reality of allowing Christ to live his life through you. One of the things we've talked about with our, uh, with all of me that Shred talked about over the past few weeks is not holding anything back for the Lord. Um, and we kind of joke that we don't, we ask for money by not asking for money um, because the reality is that we, we literally and legitimately do not, we do not want your money. We actually, we want you to give your heart to the Lord. That is what we want. And one of the ways that we do that is we have these pledge cards. Now, these pledge cards are not just a tithe. It's not just what it is, is it's, it's talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, I, I, I want to surrender everything to you. 
that includes my finances, if there's one other thing that's just surrender my life to you, if you put down on this card, um, I'm going to joyfully, prayerfully give my entire life to Jesus every week or month for 2019, go, do it. I, we want your heart for the Lord. But if you have prayerfully considered this, this is a wonderful act of worship for us. And there are these baskets right here. And what we're going to do as we, as we close our time in worship, and as we just think about the things that the Lord has taught us, if you've taken those pledge cards and you've filled them out, um, many of our families come up here, and it's just this, it's this public, wonderful act of worship where we come up and just, you don't write your amounts, you don't care about that. Just put them in the basket. If you have that card and you didn't fill it out or you don't want to fill it out and you want to put it in the back or you want to mail it in later, that's fine. But consider how the Lord wants you to be involved in what he's doing. And then as we are singing, let's just make it this beautiful act of coming to the front and just kind of dedicating that to the Lord. we do not deserve you and the wonderful power of the resurrection. Jesus, help us live in a manner worthy of this gospel by which we are saved. As we enter, Lord, into this time of worship, of responding to you in worship, responding to you by bringing up those cards as just a symbol of giving ourselves to you as we sing and as we worship.